You're listening to Shit Adults Never Taught Us, the podcast where we talk shit in a good way. Oh my god, okay, we are back for season two. I've been gone for a couple of months, traveling the world, just experiencing life, spending some time at home, working on really cool projects you guys will see at some point over the next year, but I've missed you all and I'm so excited to have season two. We are kicking off episode one with a little bit of a longer episode, but I talked to Susie Cobb, who is a marriage and family therapist, about so many things that I promise you by the end of the less than 40 minutes, you will not understand how we tackled so much in such a short amount of time. We talk about work burnout, hypervigilance, birth trauma, the expectations of becoming a new parent, and so much more in the therapy realm that just isn't explored, including childhood trauma and sobriety. So trust me, there's a lot going on in this episode. I also want to remind you guys, there's still a ton going on over at the Instagram for shit adults never taught us. And if you're new here, welcome. Go back and listen to season one. We've got 10 really cool episodes and season two will be the same. 10 really awesome new topics to explore and it will run through most of the spring and early summer. And then we've got season three, you know, we're just going to keep doing this for as long as they'll let me. So without any hesitation, let's jump into season two. Here's Susie Cobb. Hi, Susie. How are you? Hi, Natasha. I'm doing very well. Excellent. I'm so happy that you're here. Okay, we have so much to cover. So I'm just going to start right away with your background. I met you through the producing world and you and I were working on projects together and going through the insanity that is that. And now you are a marriage family therapist working with specifically new moms and mothers going through all that it is to be a new mom. So let's talk a little bit about your journey, but then let's also start with producing how you got into that and what led you to the career shift. Yeah, um, I guess I would have to preface any uh, story of my background with a little bit about trauma, because I feel like so much is like the thread of my, my life and my, um, my professional interests and, and how I was really driven to certain decisions early on. And then later, after uh, taking a lot of stock in those decisions and what was driving them, uh, and became a lot more aware of trauma. Um, did I start to make shifts and really understand where I wanted to be and yeah, what was going to be healthier for me long-term. So uh, my interest in trauma um, came during school, at least like my identification of it, right. And my like understanding um, how it works in my life. And I say I have to start telling my story uh, with sort of defining trauma because I realized after being in the field of production for a few years, how much of my decision making to get into that field was fueled by trauma and was Mm. fueled by a sense of hypervigilance within me to survive, to make money. And also, I think really like because I experienced so much trauma at an early age, I I think I was the type of person that was willing to accept certain things within my career 
that I don't think I would have accepted if I hadn't experienced so much trauma. Can you dive into that a little bit more? How did you notice that the trauma in your career was mirroring things you experienced as a child? Because I feel like a lot of us probably don't make that connection. Yeah. Well, you know, I have to be honest, like somebody pointed that out to me was like when I really put words to it. Um, but I definitely noticed like when I was a coordinator still before I actually became a producer, there was a lot of what I would identify as abusive behavior um, that was sort of just accepted as the norm. Um, and there was a lot of what I would call gaslighting now that was given to me in response to my pushing back or feeling uncomfortable by certain behaviors. And I started realizing that this just kind of reminds me of growing up in my, you know, my dysfunctional home. Um, and there were so many things that mirrored like uh, mom and dad, you know, fighting and one party saying, oh, that's not really that bad. You know, you're, you're being too sensitive or dramatic about it. And then collecting information as I went along, because I, I have always been the type of person that I'm really curious about people's stories. I really like to understand the tapestry um, that people are working with and where they come from. I think it's foundational to creating good work environments, no matter where you are. If I know somebody's professional background, I can understand better where they want to go and what their goals are and where their uh, lens is in, ter in terms of what they're focusing on at work. And so I was constantly connecting with people at work and remembering details about their lives. And I was realizing I'm not the only one here that feels burnt out, that feels exhausted, that feels like I don't have any personal time. And the weight of that and how much it affects your daily life and your ability to function as a human being um, became really apparent to me. So when I was coordinating, I used to do an online group called Adult Survivors of Child Abuse, um, which gives you a little bit of information about my background and kind of maybe how I got into therapy, right? They, they always say therapists are the ones who are actually the, the most crazy because we have <laughs> typically, not always, but a lot of times, you know, people who decide to get into therapy have had something happen in their life. They either had a, a family member with a mental illness or they themselves experienced mental illness or something like that. And then they become interested in psychology. They start looking at the solutions and going, oh, what does this look like? Oh, I really like this. I'm really curious about people's minds. You're very observational as well. I think when you experience a lot of trauma as a kid, you become observational as a survival technique. And then as you grow up, you observe a lot within other people. And it makes you a fantastic therapist. Yes. That's such a good point. I think um, there's sort of a, a trend on TikTok and uh, Instagram where people are calling out other folks who are identifying as empaths, right? And going, oh, honey, you're not an empath. You're, or call it what you want to call it, you know, but you're recovering. Yeah. You're recovering. Yeah. Recovering a uh, trauma survivor. Totally. I can relate really hard to what you said about um, just the workplace, the toxicity in the workplace and mm -hmm. it being very normalized because I have worked in really toxic places. One in particular, when I first started out and the, phrase that I'm sure you heard a lot too is this is just always how it's been done that very much mirrors if you were the kid that was like well this is how my parents did it so I'll raise you the same way but yeah. another one that stuck with me a lot and I think it still happens is people talk especially in our industry or any technology-based industry about how easy things are for us like you guys because we work in film it's like, you have no idea how hard this used to be. It used to take so much longer. Now we can do it in, you know, half the time. And mm -hmm. it's so much easier. And because it's easier, then we're abused a little bit more because 
well, it's just easy. So we can fit three jobs into a day instead of one or the, just because it got easier doesn't mean the hours got shorter. Just because it got easier doesn't mean that they are asking for less. They're actually asking for more. And that can mirror, if you have an upbringing that could be deemed as abusive or trauma was caused as a child, that if somebody is like, oh, well, other people had it harder. Other people had worse trauma. So you're like, you're right. I shouldn't complain because my trauma is easier to deal with than other people's horrific trauma. And so in the workplace, when people are just saying, oh, well, you should just be grateful that it's easier for you. It mirrors that in a way that you're probably not even aware of. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I have a, uh, a theory, which I hope doesn't offend anyone, but I think a lot of folks who are putting up with and are perpetuating these cycles probably have a lot of trauma in their, in their history if we were to dig in a bit. I, I think most people do. And people with trauma tend to unwillingly and unknowingly perpetuate the stereotypes of those perpetrators for the simple fact that it's what they've seen. So they, they know. It's yeah, what they totally. know. And they don't probably know that that's happening. Yeah, so that was the, um, I was in this adult survivor of child abuse uh, online meeting and one of my peers very lovingly said to me, um, did you ever think that maybe you chose this industry because you're accustomed to abuse? And that really hit me hard because it was like, oh my God, you're totally right. I think I did because this is, what, this is the, the level of love that I'm willing to accept for myself. Yeah. And it's a little bit about control. I recently spoke with someone who went into finance and corporation, Mm -hmm. um, what is it like corporate finance, wall street type. That's another area where burnout is so, so common. Yeah. And it was right out of college and it was like a path that they chose. And then they burnt out in about 10 years and they went into the arts. And I was like, well, why did you choose finance? And they were like, when I was a kid, we lived paycheck to paycheck. We never had control over financials. We never talked about it. We were just always poor. And they were like, I just felt like I had to take control. So I took control by getting into it and seeing it from the inside. And then I realized I don't want to actually do that. And so just going into the industry alone was just like, I got to, I got to take control of this. And it was never, do I want this? That's exactly the experience I had. So well, that's so well said. Yeah. I, poverty was a part of our story as well. And I have all the empathy in the world from, for the place that my parents were operating from. And I think they also perpetuated a lot of the ideas that you just shared about, you know, well, you didn't have it that hard or my parents or, you know, our parents beat us and we turned out fine, you know, kind of rhetoric, which is comical and sad, but we'll, we'll choose to to focus on the comedy at this moment. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think over time I realized, well, if I can make money, if I can figure out how to make money, then I can have control of exactly that. And then I can find happiness. And that was true to some extent, you know, I think poverty makes things a lot harder for people and domestic violence is typically a lot higher in families that are struggling with income. Uh, there's addiction and mental health issues are always a lot higher prevalence rate in um, families with low income. So I think it makes, it's, a, it's a, a logical line of thinking, but unfortunately when you end up in, you know, these uh, industries that are willing to take advantage of you in that way, it, it kind of unravels. I always defined an abusive or a toxic workplace as even if you haven't had childhood trauma, like I grew up in a loving home, I didn't have childhood trauma, but I can still see very clearly workplace trauma being formed or abuses in the workplace because it's the same pattern. You get, you know, you burn out, like you and I used to work until two o'clock in the morning for a week straight. And we Mm -hmm. would be like, okay, I'm done. 
I have no personal time. This is so stressful. I'm taking sleeping pills to go to sleep. I'm taking caffeine pills when I wake up. I'm like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's very hard on your body. And you're like, I'm done. I'm never doing this again. And then you have a week where it's calm and you're like, oh, it's not that bad. Actually, I'm just overreacting. That was just a bad week. Everything's fine now. And Mm -hmm. if you look at every abuse story from childhood or people in domestic violence situations, it's the same pattern. So recognizing that, of course, everyone's going to have bad days. You're going to have a bad day at work. You're going to get in a fight with a coworker. You're just going to have a day that's exhausting. But when it's a pattern, when it's constantly happening and you see that ebb and flow, you have to address it. Yeah. And I think part of why people end up coming back too is because it's really hard for the body to recalibrate. You get into a state that we call hypervigilance. Um, which is physiological. It's beyond just mental. I, I love the concept of the mind-body. I don't believe that they operate as two separate entities like we frequently accept in Western culture. Um, I think, you know, they operate in tandem. And, you know, once you're triggered into that state, the calm happens and you, yeah, you sort of justify, right? Like, well, it must have just been a hard week. But then also it feels really uncomfortable to be in that state of calm because you have been in such a state of hypervigilance for so long. What does a state of hypervigilance look like for people that may not have heard that term before? Um, It's going to manifest differently for different people. So typically, uh, I guess with the workplace, it might look like um, constantly checking your phone, constantly Mm. um, looking for notifications, feeling uh, hopeless or depressed if you don't have something consistently going on, if you're not really busy all the time. Oh, is it like guilt? Do you feel guilty when you're like watching TV at night and you're like, oh, I should just respond to that email, even though I know I can do it in the morning. Like I should just do it now. Or is it guilt when you're slower and you're like, oh, I should be busier right now. Right. Yeah. And I would define that further as like an inability to relax, right? Like have you ever sat down for a movie with somebody you're dating or a friend and you can't get off your phone and they're like, Hey, like just enjoy the movie with me. And you're like, I can't, like I I have to have like multiple things going on at once. Oh yeah. I've like literally gone on vacation with the pure goal of relaxation and left never having a relaxing moment. I would say hypervigilance carries a very strong through line in my adult life, but I've recognized it more and more recently and being able to put things down and just know that they will be fine without you. And trusting community, trusting, especially if you're in a relationship where you're noticing that this is happening, trusting mm-hmm. your gut. I think your gut is a huge teller of whether or not something is right for you. So just listen to it. Okay. So I just want to transition a little bit. So we've talked about hypervigilance and the burnout of everything you've noticed. Was there a moment when you were like, okay, I actually can't do this corporate environment anymore. I would like to pivot my career choice. And here's the path that really displayed itself to you? I was really lucky in that I had a therapist who suggested that I become a therapist. And I think I sat on it for about a year after she made the suggestion. Um, You know, I would go into session with her and I would complain about work and I would talk about some of the abuses I experienced. And she basically said to me, you know, you're, you're one of the most articulate people I've ever met, which is a very nice compliment you know, have you ever thought about doing this work? And it's interesting. I think about this now in terms of like the work I do with other clients and how I can support them through their 
uh, hypervigilance or abusive work environments or things of that nature, not everyone can turn around and go, well, I'm just going to become a therapist. If we were all therapists, the, you know, economy probably wouldn't work out so well. <laughs> Although it's a wonderful field. And if you're interested in that, I, uh, I implore you to explore it. But yes, yeah, so, so I sat on it for a year. I, I genuinely didn't think I was smart enough to go to grad school. Part of my part of my story is I was a high school dropout. Um, I had like a misdemeanor criminal record when I was really young and got sober. And, you know, I, there was a lot of chaos when I was really young, I think, as a result of me trying to anesthetize uh, the childhood experiences that I had. And I finally got up the guts and decided to apply and uh, got into my school of choice um, in Los Angeles. And man, I, if I thought I had experienced burnout already, then I had no idea what was coming because I basically spent the next three years working those, you know, 12, 16, sometimes 18 hour days that you just described and then taking grad school classes over the weekend. Wow. That is very impressive. You did just reach <laughs> by something I want to touch on for a quick second. You mentioned sobriety. How much of sobriety do you think has played into your ability to recognize codependency not just on other people but on work or lifestyle I know a lot of people who have gone through similar experiences and they've definitely noticed that the certain toxic other elements in their life whether it be relationships or workplace or other things they cling to more while going through sobriety absolutely I definitely think there can be an element of switch addiction um, which I think I was probably guilty of as well and there was a certain high and excitement that I got from being needed Right. Like I um, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of family contacts at this point uh, because of what happened when I was younger. And so, you know, my work became my family and I just poured everything I had into it. I think part of my deciding to become a therapist, too, was around the time that I had the realization that I wanted to create my own family. And I knew early on there's no way I can do this and continue to work these hours. It's not that for me, that wasn't the kind of mother I wanted to be. And so that was also a big impetus to my change. For, for me, I think sobriety and needing to get sober, the biggest gift I got from that experience was just a lot of humility because I think it would have been like, the, there's a function in addiction recovery. It's, it's present most, and I don't want to just limit this to 12 step because 12 step is, I think, a really amazing path. And, and some people choose to take it and some people find that other paths work better for them. But there was one piece that I encountered while going through 12 step, which was really just acknowledging what was and wasn't inside my control, which is a huge part of trauma recovery that I love now too, this concept of authentic optimism, um, which is, not it's sort of the antithesis of toxic positivity right so toxic positivity would be like well you just have to everything's personal responsibility you need to just figure this out yourself and i think authentic optimism says hey look some things happened to you when you were a kid that were not okay and really weren't fair and you didn't deserve um, and now you're an adult and you're going to need to make some choices to undo what was done and it's acknowledging what you can and can't control it's um, being realistic about the social injustices that you may have experienced or the inequities you may have experienced. And I think coming in to, coming to encounter that really helped me because now I take that into almost every other situation. You know, I think I probably would have spiraled out quite a bit more if I didn't have this sort of really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> humanizing experience. I love the way that you just put that. I think that is so beautiful. And what a distinction to make. 
I do think toxic positivity has found its way seeping into our society a little too much. And like it says, it's toxic positivity where people are like, oh, but the world is so much better than this moment. So just get over it. And it's like, no, feel what you need to feel in this moment. Yeah. So therapists, when I got into therapy for the first time about seven years ago, I thought therapists had one kind. I was like, oh, so there's therapy. Uh, even beyond the distinction of psychiatrist and psychologist, I just figured those, that was the path. And just like doctors, there are hundreds of paths. You can choose specialties like, you know, like a doctor would as a surgeon, pediatrics, orthopedist, whatever they may be. And so you chose a very specific path. How did you come to that? Yeah, so we're talking about postpartum and perinatal support. Um, I also really love working with LGBTQ families and parents who do not um, adhere to the heteronormative model of families, polyam families is also a, a part of the group that I typically work with. You know, I, 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 was, I got pregnant uh, early last year and my son was born serendipitously the day of my last class <laughs> for my master's degree because <laughs> that's just how I roll. And I, I think I was speaking to a friend about this. You know, I had been going so fast and so hard for so long um, because keep in mind, I was still working while I was pregnant and finishing my last classes and doing a traineeship. Well, and I think a lot of it from, from, to be totally frank was again, back to the survival, you know, mechanisms that I had built into me for so long. I think, yeah, I, I don't advise anyone do that. I, I don't have a lot of pride around that. I actually have a little bit of embarrassment that that was sort of how I spent my last few weeks. I did take, I did take some time off work towards the end of my pregnancy. But we're in this society where it's like, you have to be able to do it all. You have to be super mom who can juggle grad school, who can juggle work, who can juggle, you know, perfect relationship, have the perfect baby, make a house perfect and clean. And we're supposed to do all these things, which are completely yeah. unrealistic and would never actually happen outside of sitcom. But there is this expectation. And when we actually take a step back and we just acknowledge and meet people at what they're capable of, it's so much kinder and they get to have the full experience they should be having as opposed to like mm -hmm. racing to some invisible finish line that doesn't exist that doesn't exist that's just it and I think I have to say Natasha that the moment I saw my son's face I realized how much bullshit I had been allowing in my life and how none of that could continue any longer and when I say bullshit, I mean things that waste my time, things that keep me away from, you know, what's important in the moment, um, things that keep me on my cell phone, on my smartphone, checking emails obsessively, spending money where I don't need to be spending it. I mean, just anything you can think of that is excessive or unnecessary to like being present in the moment with a tiny human who is experiencing the world for the first time was just suddenly not just superfluous but deleterious to my entire existence and his. It was a huge wake-up call in, in realizing how much I needed to dip into slowing down. And I, I, I might argue, you know, that most women probably have some form of that experience um, and not necessarily right away. You know, there, there's a piece about, there's sort of a, a cultural uh, misnomer that we all bond with our babies immediately. And that doesn't always happen for every woman, I think, uh, or birthing person. I think that you know, some people bond with their children more so over time. But, but I think that realization of like what's important and what isn't important definitely comes in some form or fashion. And then the second thing that happens 
is then life smacks you in the face. <laughs> oh boy. What does that look like when that happens? Oh, so many things. So uh, first off, you have the postpartum period. And, and I think we're going to kind of start there. There, there are pieces to like uh, perinatal and perinatal, by the way, just means like b- before, during and after pregnancy. Um, oh, okay. so kind of a c- catch all term for like um, birthing people's, you know, mental health um, or physical health in, you know, in that, that period. And so you just ushering that into birthing, you also work with specifically birth trauma and birthing people who mm-hmm. maybe their expectation didn't meet reality and caused a bit of trauma mm-hmm. there. How does that look? What, what is that process like? There's something interesting I'm noticing with birth workers and uh, pregnancy like trends online, which is a lot of, it sort of like goes back to the toxic positivity model and the and another one, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is manifestation, um, which is something I am not a huge fan of. And I often speak out about <laughs> because I think, you know, here's the, here's the reality. You, there's so many biological things happening and there's so many different pieces of the puzzle. I cannot control my birth, right? I can do my best to like stay as calm as I can be. I can do yoga. I can stretch my hips. There's plenty of like really amazing PT, uh, physical therapy and orthopedic therapy you know, people online who can teach you how to do things to help your birth along, you know, and I, and I do think those are wonderful things to engage in. And I'm certain that they have clinical benefits, but for the most part, your practitioner can't control your birth and neither can you. And I think the problem with us sort of telling women, Hey, like if you do all these things, if you, if you pay for this uh, $600, you know, pain-free birth class, um, which is, in my humble opinion, the crock of shit. Yeah, that's snake um, oil right there. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it is with snake oil. But I, I, I think the, the bigger issue is, you know, look, if somebody wants to buy some crystals and that makes them feel good, like I'm all for that. I think that's wonderful. I think there's nothing wrong with people engaging in things that are, you know, symbolic of their form of spirituality or how they connect to the earth. I think that's wonderful. And it's also not my place to tell anyone to not engage with something that makes them feel good. It's whatever works for them, but it's also, it has to, I assume, make sense in the moment and be healthy and safe. Right. And the piece that I would argue is not healthy is when we set people up to have internalized victim blaming. Mm. So oh, I, end, I ended up with the cascade of, you know, it, we call it in, with birthing, like the cascade of medical interventions, right? Which is like, I went to the hospital, I asked for an epidural because I got an epidural, I needed more Pitocin because my body wasn't contracting. And so because I needed more Pitocin, I needed more epidural. Uh, more of an epidural and that went on for four hours and then the baby heart rate increased and then I had to get a c-section right Mm -hmm. and this you know there's a lot of uh people who will say you know if we never stepped in and did that then you know you you wouldn't have had a c-section and I think you know there's a lot of good evidence to unwarranted or unnecessary c-sections there's a lot of good arguments out there for um OBGYNs you know increasing the rate of c-sections as opposed to decreasing them Mm -hmm. However, I think a lot of that stuff, there's two pieces here. I think there's a social, there's a social piece, which like absolutely our medical system needs to change. Um, But I think psychologically what we can do and what is really, really important to me is helping women who and birthing people who who have experienced birth trauma know that it does not have to become what we call childbirth related PTSD, right? So you, and this goes for any trauma, by the way. Yeah you can get in a car accident and it can stay with you for the rest of your life. 
you can get in a car accident and you can take measures to take care of yourself and you can heal. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't think it's as simple as like, we'll take this pill and go to six therapy sessions. I mean, it's complicated, right? It's going to be multi-layered depending on a person's history. Um, but I do believe that we have the power to heal from trauma. And I think that we typically look at it pretty incorrectly. I actually don't believe that talk therapy enough on its own is enough um, to heal trauma. I think there's a lot of movement that needs to happen. Um, I think a lot of connection with other human beings, a lot of like regaining competence and confidence in oneself. Can you define birth trauma? Because I think for me, I picture it just being the PTSD of somebody after the, the few months after giving birth and potentially not healing at the rate that they thought they would having mental and physical symptoms last longer than they thought they would. But like you said, there's a lot of, everybody says this, but the second you get pregnant, everybody and their mother has advice for you on how you should do it or not do it or all of this. And I think that plays a factor. I think social media on how quickly you should recover and how quickly you should be moving on mm-hmm. plays a factor in you're comparing yourself. So overall, what does birth trauma mean and look like? What encompasses that term? I think you can define birth trauma as, and and you said it really well earlier, but anything that you experience is sort of unexpected. um, And I would add that shocks your system and leaves you in a state of fear, right? So it triggers a hypervigilance that we talked about earlier. It, for some people, can cause them to question their ability to birth their children, their ability to keep their children safe. It can cause them, I mean, I, I won't, I won't lie to you, birth is extremely painful. You know, I, I, I didn't have an epidural, so I don't know what that experience is like, but um, I could tell you it's definitely the most painful thing I've ever experienced. And I think, you know, I, I didn't even expect it. I knew it was going to be very painful and I didn't expect it to be as painful as it was. Yeah. And I think that even just that simple process, even if you have the perfect birth, that in and of itself can become traumatic. You know, you can get triggered into a state where you feel like you can't control anything and you don't know what pain you're going to experience. Um, I had one client once who said this so beautifully. She said she felt like she had escaped the plight of womanhood her whole life. Play, played as hard as the boys, worked as hard as the boys, earned as much as the boys, you know, very strong feminist. And um, ultimately when it came to birth, she felt like she couldn't escape. And that was one of the most heartbreaking feelings, even though she loved her child immensely. But this idea that like, oh, you know, the Adam and Eve story of, you know, women are going to experience pain in child labor and there's no way to escape it. You know, for some women that can be enough to feel really um, demoralizing and dehumanizing. And pain demands to be felt. So if you were expecting the epidural to take it all away, if you've done all of the classes and read all of the books on how to have a quote unquote pain-free birth and you're expecting that, and then it isn't that, that in itself can be really traumatic. There's also the trauma that can come with you think you'll be a certain way afterwards. And the, you, like you said, you may not feel like you're living in fear. You may not feel like you can keep your child safe, but also the vision that you had as a mother may not look Mm -hmm. like that. And that can be traumatic Mm -hmm. where having this perfect family unit didn't come true in the way you imagined it. And it looks different and that can be traumatic. I talk a lot on here about grieving the future we thought we'd have. And you're essentially grieving what you thought you were going to be as a parent. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say that. That's so beautiful. And I think it's so true. And I think that back to the messages we receive, like I've just seen so often, I did a post on this the other day, but it was, you know, well, one, you can be grateful and still grieve. 
right? Yeah. Like those things are not, one doesn't equal out the other. We, we love to say that we'll be grateful. We'll be grateful. You know, you, can with, be. you said that yeah. with the work, right? Yeah. But you can still be sad. Um, right. And, and grieving isn't linear. Grieving doesn't happen where it's like all of a sudden yeah. you're recovered. There are going to be stages, especially as you watch your child grow up, that you're going to grieve, that you're going to think that a certain moment was going to look this way and it doesn't. And as your child becomes a person, they're going to react to things differently than you thought they would. They're going to become their own person in a way that maybe you didn't imagine. And I am sure mm -hmm. that brings grief as well. There's another one I'll, I'll share with you that I think is really interesting. And my husband and I have talked about this quite a lot since we both experienced a lot of childhood abuse. Um, but there is an experience that I've heard parents share about. Well, I don't think we're far enough in our parenting journey to have gotten here yet, but we, we do talk about it, um, which is having had childhood adverse childhood experiences um, and then seeing your kid have this wonderful life and the inner child in you has immense jealousy or feels right. even even if you want the absolute best for your child of and of course, course you do, you're yeah. like a balanced logical person like you're you know you're doing your best to, to not let that come out but you know realizing oh my gosh my kid will never know the atrocities that I experienced, which is wonderful. And that's the goal. But there's also a little part of you inside that might go, fuck. And a lot of people <laughs> that experience childhood trauma do have kids to be like, well, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to give them the life I never had. And then they give the kid the life they never had. And they look at them and they get jealous of that life. Yeah, exactly. That, exactly. Thank you so much for sharing this. This has been incredible. I would love to ask you some questions. Would that be all right? Yeah. What's one life lesson that you had to learn over and over again? Honey, those red flags, I'm there wait, waving you in. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of red flags that have come up in my life that I just ignored as white flags and was like, I'll just charge right ahead. I think partly from society uh, and the way that we treat women um, as, you know, silly or as um, invalid. Um, I think I treated my, I had some internalized um, misogyny happening there where I would say, oh, you, you must be being silly, even though my gut really did know this isn't a safe person. This isn't a safe job. Yeah. And that's definitely one thing I hope to instill in my child and in clients too, is to really trust that voice, you know? Yeah. And really, if you really don't trust, that, trust voice. that voice, gut check it with other people. This is a very random tangent, but the other day I got an email with some from a potential client at work and it had one line in it that I was like, this feels inappropriate. And, you know, the first 10 years of my career, I would have been like, oh, whatever. They probably didn't mean it that way. But instead I paused. I went to the two women sitting next to me and I was like, can you read this and just tell me your gut reaction? And they both read it and they were both like, ew. And I was like, oh, okay. So my emotion is correct. And the amount of times in my life that I've probably mm -hmm. not done that move and just gone, oh, Natasha, you're overreacting. I, I don't trust my yeah. own emotions a lot. And so I probably just pushed it away and was like, I'm reading that wrong. That's definitely not what it is. There's something validating about somebody else confirming that. So if you don't trust your own emotions, talk to somebody, even if it's not a therapist, talk to a friend. Mm -hmm. they will, oh, absolutely. They will tell you that the red flag is a red flag, <laughs> especially if it's yeah. somebody that you trust. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice you wish you had at 18? Oh gosh. Um, it gets better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is this youth orientation of our society where we think young people are just living 
the best life ever and they have no cares and they're no responsibilities and they're just living it up on TikTok. And the reality is that creates a fear of getting older and it gets better, guys. Just keep getting older. You get smarter, you get wiser and you give a lot less shits, which is so great. Um, I totally agree. All right. Is there a relationship in your life that you wish was stronger? I feel like based on our conversation, that question's probably you've got a list, but is there somebody in your life that you wish you had a stronger relationship with or better relationship, whichever is more applicable? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I spent so much time wishing for better relationships, um, especially with family. And I think ultimately it's taken me a really long, this is the funny thing about becoming a therapist. Um, if you went through childhood trauma, if that's part of your story, I do think a lot of us kind of realize, oh shit, I've been the family therapist for a really long time. And I, I think part of that for me um, was kind of letting go of the wishes, actually, like stepping into my power as a therapist and stepping into my role as a therapist and saying, oh no, I'm going to actively choose to do this work with people who are willing, with people who do want to show up and do the work. Um, it also meant for me letting go of trying to do that with people who were not willing to do the work. Yeah. Um, it took me a really long time to accept that my relationship with my father was only going to be as strong as it was going to be. You know, we have very different belief systems and to some degree he's not available for more. And so rather than wishing that it was, you know, stronger or that he would, you know, listen to me go on and on about my beliefs or ideas, I kind of go, okay, well, what do we relate on? Well, we both ride motorcycles. Okay, that's cool. Let's talk about motorcycles. Yeah, you you find the common ground. I think honestly more people need to find the common ground. We've become a society that is so focused on our differences, we forget about our similarities. And we focus on our similarities. Sometimes those relationships just mend the way that they're meant to, and they don't have to be more. Yeah, I also think you have more of an opportunity to influence that person. And I mean, what's the old adage? More flies of honey. And, oh yeah. Yeah, I get, I get more chances to talk about my progressive ideals and you know my uh, belief in therapy as reparations or you know whatever I'm currently working on um, when I'm just hanging out and and being calm with them as opposed to, you know, jumping down his throat and saying, you should believe this and this. So just give (laughs) yourself that space. Thank you so much for, I know we barely touched the surface, but we did discuss a bit of the marriage family therapy, a bit of birth trauma and a bit of what it means to be a new parent. But if you want to learn more about Susie's work, I strongly encourage her Instagram. It's fantastic content. And honestly, just watching your reels and stories, I've learned so much it's an it's amazing can you tell people where to find you sure i'm therapy underscore for underscore mamas on instagram or therapyformamas.com love it i want to thank Susie so much for coming on and sharing her experience i highly recommend checking out her instagram it's filled with so much information she shares daily and honestly not being a mom myself i've learned a ton And I feel like I've got a better grasp on what to expect should that day ever come. It's an incredible platform for anybody just looking to share about trauma in general. I hope you guys have an amazing week and join us next week for a brand new episode of season two of Shit Adults Never Taught Us. That's all for today's episode. Check back in next week to talk a little more shit with me. In the meantime, be sure to grab your copy of Shit Adults Never Taught Us on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. 
to learn all the shit adults never taught us. And in case no one told you this week, you're killing it. So keep going, you genuine badass.